Hello and welcome to My Boga Conversations. My name is Lee Albert and this is MyBoga.com. I'm delighted to be here today with Dr. Anwar Jiwan, uh, who is the uh, founder and director of uh, Minds Alive Wellness Clinic in uh, South Africa uh, Wellness Centre. He uh, holds an honours degree in religion and social transformation with the University of KwaZulu-Natal, for which he submitted a mini dissertation entitled Religion, Religion, Spiritual and Substance Abuse. He also holds a master's degree in social science from uh, from UKZN. The title of his dissertation was The The Treatment of Substance Abuse in Residential Centres in the 21st Century. He is currently in the process of submitting a PhD proposal focusing on the long-term effects of Ibogaine. And if that's not enough, he's been a, a radio presenter on local community radio for the last 20 years. Uh, Dr. Anwar is a, a doctor of um, a dental surgery and in the last two years also uh, obtained uh, an ACLS certified qualification. So. Uh, without saying any more, more uh, without any further ado, I'm going to introduce Anwar and say how absolutely uh, delighted and honoured I am to have you here on uh, our show, uh, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So how are you doing, Anwar? I'm great, Albert, and thank you very much for the opportunity. No, well, it's, it's a pleasure, and uh, it really is a great pleasure. I've known you now for quite a number of years, uh, and um, it, you know, we most recently met was in Tbilisi, in Georgia, which I thought was an interesting experience. How did you find that? I think it was a great experience. What I liked about the experience was more that, you know, it was a case where we weren't talking, talking to the converted. At least we were talking to a lot of uh, people who wanted to know more about Ibogaine. And, you know, we're getting first-hand information, you know. So this was assisted us in, in, in trying to pass the message uh, to as many people as possible that, have uh, no understanding of ibogaine and wanted to learn more. Yes, and, and uh, on that subject, how exactly did you get first involved with ibogaine? Where did the connection come? Well, look, uh, it's no secret. I, I've experienced a 17-year-old 17 17 year addiction myself, a polydrug user, and you know they say that uh, when you do become addicted, you only land up three places, either dead or jail or in mental institution. So I did land up in a mental institution and reached rock bottom. But through some miracle, I've overcome my addiction over 21 years ago. And then I had this interest in wanting to help others uh, who shared the same uh, challenges and, and dilemma. So I started helping people on a voluntary basis while I was practicing dentistry. And then I found out that more and more people needed help. And because I understood uh, you know, addiction firsthand, uh, then I pursued my studies uh, by getting the honors degree. And I know that religion and spirituality played a very important role in my uh, overcoming, in, in, in me overcoming addiction. So I think my mini dissertation focused on that. But I was a bit concerned about the current traditional models uh, that was available in my country and throughout the world. And that's when my professor asked me, uh, when I wanted to do my master's, he says, well, why don't you look at the strength and weaknesses of the current traditional model? And I've done that uh, for my master's degree. 
And the intention there was not to basically, uh, you know, find faults in a particular traditional model. It was about asking them what are the strengths and weaknesses, how do they use and continue using the strength, and how do they tweak their model to incorporate other modalities to improve their success rate. And that's what had really happened. But even during that process, I was still a bit concerned that a lot of people we were treating were not treatment ready, although they weren't in denial, although they wanted to overcome addiction, but they still were not treatment ready. Uh, so that's when I started researching and looking at a lot of different alternate therapies. And by chance, a um, patient of mine's, her mom, uh, basically had asked me to look at a particular documentary, and it was a documentary on Ibogaine that was on our local national TV station. And I said, wow, this looks very interesting and got hold of the material and tried it on a few patients. And I said, you know what, this seems like the missing link. This I found to be the first and the most important step towards any rehabilitation process. And actually, if I'm if I'm correct in saying, um, the center which you set up was in many ways, uh, was it not uh, influenced by your own personal uh, spiritual beliefs? Is that not so? Not really, because, you know, I mean, the thing is that I didn't want it to be focused on one, you know, uh, religious stance. So spirituality basically encompasses all religious faith. So what I found was that I wanted to have, because I was referring people and I was assisting people and guiding people and uh, doing, you know, the motivation, the assessment, and then send, referring them to treatment centers and then doing the aftercare and the follow-up. And I found that, you know, those things were lacking in traditional models because traditional models, somebody has a problem going to an institution, get treated, and yes, uh, they do have follow-up and aftercare, but it was only focused on the 12-step model which was one type of a model. Uh, I'm not saying there was anything wrong with the model, but I was saying that, you know, it's different strokes for different folks. You know, there are different options for different people. So I designed uh, uh, and I decided to open up my own treatment center by trying to go out of the box to be a bit different. I still stuck with the basic uh, 12 steps program initially, but I incorporated, I was uh, incorporating other alternative models. So what I was doing was whatever was the, recommendations and the outcome of my master's research that was what i could implement in my treatment center and you were the you were the director of the center and, and what was your role as director exactly well i basically was was overseeing you know the whole running of the institution yes i played a very important role in the assessment criteria because i felt that if you assess a particular client and you see that this client you know has a better chance of recovery now because i have a first-hand understanding of addiction i could read between the lines you know a lot of addicts have the tendency when they talk to professionals who basically have qualifications in the field of addiction or psychiatry but do not have any personal experience it's very easy for an addict to con them and bluff them or make them hear what they want to hear so because I had first an experience, I could basically help and guide and see and assist an individual to see that this person, whether they are, you know, uh, want to recover or not want to recover or coming in for the right reasons and not because they've been forced, 
you know, by the boss or by the family or by the wife or by circumstances. So once I do the initial part, then the team does take over with, you know, following the admission procedures and then doing the medical examination, uh, doing all the necessary tests. And you do the psychological analysis uh, by done by a psychologist. So I put a team together. And I was guiding the team and I was instrumental in tweaking and designing the programs and giving those necessary people who hold those qualifications to run with the program. So I was basically just the captain steering the ship. Right. So you were never actually taking on the role of a medical doctor as such. No, none none of the roles that I played was a role of a professional uh, in a case that because if you are not don't hold those qualifications, then it is unethical for you to do so. But uh, yes, I you could I, I I used to guide those professionals in some form or other. Like if a person that needs to be checked by a medical doctor uh, was checked by a medical doctor, if a person wa- was to be monitored was monitored by a nurse, and if any cons- any uh, complication arises, uh, a medical doctor always step in. I've never put up a drip in my life because I felt that was not my role to do so. Uh, I never s- attended to any of the medical emergencies because uh, obviously then I was stepping out of the scope of my practice. Although I did have an understanding and the knowledge of addiction medicine based on my experience, uh, I only used to basically guide and assist those professionals engaging with them on the right direction to take based on my experience. But I never used to do it on my own. And uh, in regards to intake and uh, clients coming to your site, how, how much of a problem was it that uh, perhaps clients would surreptitiously take uh, drugs with them into the centre or that they were already on a number of different drugs and they claimed to be, to be uh, abstinent? Um, how did you deal with those sort of circumstances, situations? Well, look, all treatment center has a policy, uh, basically, that uh, part of the screening process is to do a drug test uh, because you can't believe everything that comes out of an addict's mouth. So it's important to make sure that a drug test is done uh, on site. And, uh, you know, uh, what tends to happen is then uh, once a drug test is done, then you know exactly what's in the system. And then a thorough search is done. But I mean, no way in the world can anybody do a search that's 100%, you know, addicts right. are, 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 you know, I mean, are, are masters in trying to see if they need to get a fix. So that was also a problem. But how I overcame that challenge was then I started taking on people that I knew that we genuinely wanted to recover. What I mean, that they didn't even have the thought of wanting to bring any substance because they came there for a purpose. And how you gauge that? Again, you know, for what reason is that individual coming into your treatment center? I mean, the and everything that I, I, I've implemented in my treatment center was through trial and error. I had for many years, I think for the first six years, you must understand, I started a residential addiction center in 2003. I only introduced ibogaine in my treatment center in 2006. And it wasn't done in my treatment center. It was done in a different um, uh, place. And once they completed the ibogaine treatment, then they came into my center. Now, initially, because I used to get a lot of patients that used to come in forced or for the wrong reasons, then those are the ones that were trying the tricks in order to try and get some substance to come in the center. And that was impossible to stop 
uh, them from doing because they always found a way. And, you know, it was like playing a game, cat and mouse game. So then when I changed the strategy around maybe 2008, and I said, no, I'm only accepting those that want to be there. And the procedure and, and, and the technique I followed is that if you do not want to be there, then you are free to leave anytime you want to. So you're not kept there against the world. Doesn't mean you have to complete your program. If you tell me I need to go, I will try and counsel you and try to convince, I mean, try to help you to change your mind. But if you're adamant that you want to leave, you open the door and you let them go. You call the family members and you let them go. So this is the the the, the scenario that I used for for many, many years. I think most recently, and it was working pretty well, most recently, the one incident that took place in my treatment center was the situation now with prescription medication. You know, do you basically stop them from prescription medication or do you allow them to take a prescription medication which cannot be stopped abruptly? So there were certain technicalities that became a bit challenging and that's where I think we could not enforce the rule as how we had done uh, for, for, for many years. And uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, the underground movement in the sense of you have a lot of people who will provide a service in a hotel room or in someone's home and they're on their own? Uh, I mean, isn't that really a situation that's fraught with danger? Look, it is fraught with danger, but let's be realistic, right? There are lots of people that are doing underground treatment and there are a lot of addicts that are doing home treatment. If you look at the percentage of them resulting in any form of consequences, it's very minimal. You know, the percentage is extremely low. So you can't say that, yes, if somebody uh, uh, you know, undergoes or, or, or somebody that conducts an underground treatment or somebody that uh, does a treatment at home is guaranteed to be dangerous and risky. Yes, the chance is much higher. Um, where, 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 what I would suggest is that because Ibogaine has not been accepted worldwide, has forced people to either try it at home or otherwise force people to do it in, in, in underground settings. But take into consideration that in order for you to make ibogaine work, the setting is very crucial. So when we look at the whole criteria, first of all, we look at the assessment criteria, okay? Then now, in the last one to two years, people have introduced pre-ibogaine counseling. That means prepare you for the treatment. Because imagine we're putting you through a treatment that's very powerful, that's bringing you from an addiction, addictive fa- addiction phase to a pre-addiction phase in 48 hours. You know, it's, it's a huge jump. It's like, you know, me, I'm putting you in a space shuttle and sending you to space without preparing. You know, NASA takes many months to prepare somebody before they send them out to space. Right. So the similar situation like this is that, again, the preparation is very important. The assessment criteria is very important. And then even when you're giving them Ibogaine, then it's also important to make sure that you have a medical team in place that's doing the necessary monitoring, right, and that are uh, giving them the doses accordingly based on the proper monitoring. And thereafter, it's the setting, again, that plays a very important role. Uh, If you have it in a very enclosed setting, you know, uh, a person, after they come out of an ibogaine experience 36 or 46 hours, 48 hours later, you know, they need to be in a relaxed environment. They need to have 
a lot of space around them because they have, have to allow a lot of introspection, you know. And then obviously the counseling and the other forms of therapy and the healing modalities uh, are basically that just an adjunct to this type of, 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 of treatment, you know. So it plays a very important role. The risk about people doing it in their homes, first of all, they're doing it on their own and there have been situations where they don't know how to give their doses accordingly based on, you know, the changes that are taking place in their body, uh, in their heart specifically, and they keep on just dosing, stack dosing, and there have been situations where people have died. And then those that are doing it at home are buying their medicine, uh, you know, online. So you don't know the quality of your medication, okay? And you don't know the percentage of ibogaine that's present in the powder that you have. So that, again, is another risk factor. Then say now you go through an experience uh, which might not be comfortable for you. And then also with opiate users, you get a lot of residual withdrawals. Uh, or people do suffer with residual withdrawal. Not a lot, but people do suffer with residual withdrawals. So uh, uh, an addict doesn't like to feel discomfort, uh, uh, to feel any form of uncomfortable feeling. So nothing is going to stop him from being at home and still using his drug of choice. Right. And that can be risky. Right. So, so yeah. there's a lot of dynamics involved in this in in these type of settings and environments. Right now, because I, I, I mentioned, I, I, I asked that question actually a while ago of um, Eric Taub, Richie, regarding why some uh, some clients surreptitiously take uh, heroin. And his, he, what he said was that during a, a session, what his answer was that um, it, it's a question of choice, they, they, of freedom. They, they're not used to having this freedom. So uh, they, they, they want, if you like, to... Um, almost return to the addictive state. Uh, but are you saying that that it's that in some cases uh, in a session that a, a, an addict feels uncomfortable and, and uh, decides to take an opioid at that point? Well, that that is one scenario. The other scenario, I do agree with Eric Tubb, uh, and I found this in, in, in a certain percentage of cases, is that you must understand ibogaine is not a magic bullet, it's not a cure, okay? So what happens in a case like that is that, you know, it takes you in the direction that you want to go. It's always based on your intention. Now, you know, you might have the intention to want to stop, but at sub that is, at, at subconscious level, you still have had no intention to give up. So ibogaine basically reveals your subconscious intention. So there are people that after going through an ibogaine experience, which I've seen, that have absolutely no withdrawals, absolutely zero withdrawals, still want to leave the institution and go and use. So yes, it is also partly uh, due to choice, and it's also partly due to being uncomfortable that makes right. them go back into the drugs. Yeah, and I think it's probably important to point out that, um, you know, on the, the underground movement, you know, if, if certain... Um, protocols are followed such as you know medical testing and and so forth uh, the, the risk factor compared to continuing uh, one's use of drugs actually is probably a lot less and the outcome probably a lot more favorable uh, in the long run so i think that is what people i think that's what a lot of people sort of uh, bear in mind when they go through that process of being in an underground treatment is that uh, when you weigh everything up it's a better option 
than the status yeah, no, quo. Yeah, it is a better option. I mean, it does help that somebody is guiding you and monitoring you. But the only part that I find that is not conducive to a person's recovery is being in an enclosed environment. Because, you know, once the mind opens up, then you also want to be in an open environment, like in a therapy environment, maybe basically, you know, sitting in a garden, take going for walks, uh, jumping into the beach, you know, having a swimming pool, laying under the sun. Now, yes. when you do this in hotels and motels and uh, baby, uh, BNBs and Airbnbs, then you, that, that part is lacking, you know. Right. Uh, so, right. But and we do understand that the circumstances, you know, uh, make us go into those directions based that since Ibogaine is not widely acceptable so that uh, people can go and select this type of environment. But I noticed that, you know, clinics in Mexico, a lot of them, okay, no, but those are clinics. Those are not uh, basically underground movements. Uh, but I do understand that, you know, uh, if you look at the overall risk, there is a risk, but uh, there's not such a huge risk. Right. So, you know, it, it, because we tend to basically uh, make sure we cover all those bases. Right. But it'll be nice if everybody could go into a proper residential center which has all the necessary facilities. And, and, and talking about centers, I mean, the, the cost for treatment, you know, is, is goes from one extreme to the other. I mean, the actual Ibogaine itself, I think the, you can buy what's needed for treatment for a couple hundred dollars, right? But but the cost of a treatment itself can go into the, uh, from 10 to 15 to God knows how many thousands of euros or dollars uh, and it starts out at from fifteen hundred dollars upwards, or something like that, or two thousand. So, what's your thoughts on the the spectrum of of prices? Well, to be very frank with you, for the last fourteen, fifteen years, I've been involved in the ibogaine movement. Uh, I've always, you know, uh, showed my disagreement and dissatisfaction when it comes to the cost per factor. I mean, uh, going into an institution, look, an average cost is, is $5,000 or 5,000 euros. Uh, now and then people will go up to the 3,000. But even underground, uh, the guys in underground also charging $5,000, you know. Right. Uh, so, yeah, they're also charging $5,000, you know, putting you into a hotel or a motel and things like that. So, you know, the prices is something that I was only always totally against. I feel that uh, the prices are extremely high. Yes, I do understand that people have expenses. Uh, sp expenses, okay, the product is not very expensive. Uh, the product is only a couple hundred dollars. But then I think they take into consideration, you know, having a medical team, uh, basically their rent, uh, their food, their staff, complement, uh, and all the other expenses. But I still feel that still doesn't justify that amount. It's pretty steep, it's pretty high. Uh, and that makes it very difficult for those that cannot afford it. Like the mentality, a lot of addicts, I mean, a lot of addiction treatment centers and a, a number of ibogaine clinics have the same mentality. Oh, uh, if you know how to find the money to feed your habit, then you'll find the money for treatment. Uh, but that's not a case. Let, let's be honest. A lot of them tend to want to go into treatment when they're fed up or when they reach a stage you know, where they lost everything. Uh, so there are ways and means that I think we need to make it affordable uh, by taking into consideration that uh, if uh, we do in groups, because I noticed from experience 
people will do one patient or two patients at a time. And that amount basically covers the expenses, right? But if you do a group, uh, obviously a group that you don't do all in one room, but I mean, uh, you might have to increase your team of your medical staff. But if you do like an average four patients, then those expenses are spread among the four patients. How I used to manage also was that uh, you get people who can afford it. And definitely nobody I know that are charging those fees that are going to say that I'm breaking even. They are making a profit. So you can subsidize one or two patients. Right. You know, you don't have to subsidize them 100% free. You can give a person a free treatment, maybe two patients a month free, or you can even reduce costs for some people. You right. know? So those that can afford it will pay your full cost. Those that can afford it, you can work on a sliding scale. And that now and then, you know, as uh, helping the people in the community, you can basically do one or two treatments free. I mean, I used to do uh, work on a similar system. I've treated a few people at free. Uh, but obviously, again, you'd be very selective because sometimes when people don't pay for services, they don't appreciate it. Absolutely. And they don't, yeah, and, and they don't, you know, work very hard towards their recovery. And, you know, in terms of uh, going to a treatment provider, I, I think one of the concerns I might have is that um, a lot of people who have themselves been formally uh, addicted and they've had a treatment, they go through a grace period where, you know, they they, if, they feel as though they're, they're, all the problems in their lives has been solved and they're now capable of running their own centre when, when actually they're still carrying a lot of baggage, a lot of stuff that needs to be dealt with and may not have the, the life skills to actually uh, handle people in these circumstances. So what 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 advice would you give anybody that's, looking to go to a treatment provider, how would they know who to go to? Yeah, well, look, you know, uh, when when I have mentioned that it's dangerous and risky, and even I think Dr. Jeffrey Camlet mentioned that, you know, people go uh, for an Ibogaine experience and overcome an addiction and have a wow experience that suddenly all when it becomes, uh, you know, uh, Ibogaine providers. Uh, I think I should have explained it better. Uh, even if you look at current traditional programs, you know, if anyone that do go into these type of programs and uh, are, are going through a recovery process, there is a rule that it's important for you to be clean for two years uh, before you start wanting to help anybody. Uh, because it takes one year uh, when uh, the percentage of relapses drop tremendously. We know 95% of relapses happen in the first year. After that, the relapse rate drops. So, in two years, that's a time where you will uh, get stability, you will be over overcome your emotional state, and you will be able to handle things much better. So my advice to anyone that basically wants to get involved in becoming an ibogaine prov provider, I would say first work on your recovery, okay? Get to the level where you are emotionally, psychologically, mentally stable, and you basically have showed a good track record of being clean and sober, and then get involved in assisting or maybe even opening up a clinic. I mean, I'm one of them that did that only after a couple of years when I opened up bone treatment center. Uh, I was clean for about three, four years before I opened up bone treatment center. So that's the right way to go. Uh, a lot of people I want to open up within months. And and what we're finding is that while that uh, ibogaine provider is uh, uh, basically running a, a, a clinic, uh, suddenly relapses, you know, uh, and, and it's been happening quite often. 
Right, uh, and that's so that's where the mistake. Yeah, that's so where it can it, be dangerous. Yes. Yeah, so how so, does the client know who to choose? That's my question. I think. Well, again, when you're choosing a clinic, it's good to know the track record of the people that are owning the clinic, running the clinic, and working in the clinic. You can ask the necessary questions. Okay. I mean, it's good to have somebody that understands your addiction. Uh, I mean, we do know that people who have overcome addiction have been very good counselors and therapists uh, and can read a patient. But again, it's best to ask them, you know, uh, how long are you clean for? You know, that's the best way to gauge uh, how long have you been sober for? You know, have you had any relapse during your recovery? Um, You know, those type of questions will give them an idea, uh, you know, as far as, uh, the guy is safe to go into and work with, and I know that I'm not going to have a problem. But also, I, I would normally recommend that we don't find many in the medical field, uh, like doctors and nurses. There's a small percentage who had an addiction and are getting involved in treatment. Most of them are just lay people. So their role should be maybe as uh, opening up a treatment center, but making sure that they're employing the right professionals to be able to treat the patients. Right, because I think I understand that some of the centres that continue to operate under the same name, but there's been, you know, various internal uh, issues going on, and the name stays the same, but the, the actually the the the, the centre stays the same, but there are different people running it, so it can be a little confusing. But uh, going back to you were talking about, you know, it's nice to have an environment where you can. Um, recover after the treatment you're based in uh, durban right that's correct yeah so where your center is somewhere near the coast or where exactly no we we in a suburb in a very quiet suburb uh you know we we also don't have as much space that we would like to have so what we used to do is yes we do have the swimming pool we have the sauna okay we have the jacuzzi uh we have the basic stuff where they can sit down and and look at the trees and, you know, you hear the birds singing and, you know, we have tend to have a lot of monkeys that come and play. But what we also do is after come to, when it comes to the fourth day, then we take them to a nearby uh, a place, which uh, a lovely place conducive for hiking and walking. You know, we take them supervised. Then because we don't live very far from the coast, it's a 10 minute drive. Then we also take them to the beach for a swim, you know. So we use these facilities, but we tend to use them only after three days has passed when the patient is pretty stable, uh, you know, in order for them to maybe enjoy the outdoors. Yes. No, I, um, I mean, I, I, just talking about South Africa for a moment, I spent three years in Botswana and South Africa in the 80s as a teacher. So I have a lot of good memories of traveling through South Africa. It's a very beautiful country and you're very fortunate, I think, in many ways to be living there. Uh, so, uh, what what sort of particular challenges do you think South Africa faces with Ibogaine that are perhaps unique to South Africa? I don't think it's only just South Africa uh, faces these challenges. I think the biggest challenge that we had faced, which, you know, although in 2016, you know, there was a circular pass by the Department of Health and by the regulated bodies called Medicines Control Council, that Ibogaine has now been approved as a scheduled medication, just like how we see in New Zealand and in Brazil, and uh, maybe to a certain extent in Canada. Uh, we thought that, okay, Ibogaine now is legal and uh, you know everything is good and we all got very happy. 
but it made it more difficult in the sense that once it reaches a regulated stage or a scheduling state, then there are more procedures and protocols that you need to follow. So, okay, it has to be done under proper medical supervision. You have to have the necessary qualifications to be able to handle a scheduled uh, medication. But we do all that and we have all that in place. But the problem comes is the medicine itself, the raw material itself or the medication itself, that alone does not have any approval by any regulating body. So it's not somebody that can say, okay, I will follow the laws of the country, all right? And I will make sure that I'm following the laws of the country by having the necessary team that will be able to prescribe, use, and dispense and treat uh, according to the scheduling status. But is your medicine registered as a, a, a scheduled medication? Now, if it's not, then automatically you have everything else legal and that one part that's not licensed, which is illegal, everything else falls flat. You know what I mean? So that's the biggest challenge that we face prior to that when it's in a gray area, which a lot of countries are in, you still have the leeway of making sure that you use because there's no law to say that it's prohibited. So that was one aspect. I think that was the main aspect that we have found. And I think that's the main aspect that any countries in the world have is the legality or the legal status of ibogaine, the product itself or the ibogaine treatment itself. Now, because if you're in a country where it's in a gray area, then you can't register that with the necessary regulating bodies. I remember my treatment center was was uh, due for a, a renewal of a license in 2010 or 2011, January. And when I asked uh, this regulating body that I would like to do ibogaine treatment, they said, sorry, you cannot do ibogaine treatment. So I refused to accept the license based on I didn't want to do what was not working. So I, because ibogaine was in a gray area, I continued doing ibogaine treatment uh, in a form of a wellness setting and a wellness clinic. So I used the technicality to function, you know, and uh, that allowed me uh, to able to use ibogaine for many years. But then now when a situation arises, then the legality come, are you a licensed treatment center or not a licensed treatment center? So obviously I was not a licensed treatment center because the time when I was getting the license, they don't, ibogaine was not an approved medication, neither was it illegal. Then eventually when it became approved, when we are trying to go through the process of, of licensing it, then the question come, where are you getting your product from? Is your product uh, basically approved and licensed? Is your medication, because you can't use, even if you have a medication that's approved and licensed in a particular country, but it's not approved in your country, it is considered to be illegal, you know. So those are the main challenges. Uh, otherwise, uh, I don't think there was any other challenge. I mean, currently at the moment still there are uh, treatment centers that are functioning in South Africa that uh, basically are still not licensed and they're not really uh, having any problems uh, in, in that sense. But again, it's, it, it opens them up to a lot of risk factors. Right. So how, how, how do you see uh, overall the, 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 the challenges to the community? Because how, these times we're in, I mean, you know, we, we appear to be in a kind of a, a little bit uh, disordered uh, as a community. Would that be fair to say? Well, badly disordered. Yeah. I wouldn't say a little bit. Um, the reason being, again, we need to understand that 
you know, the ibogaine community has been fighting for many years to get ibogaine approved and licensed throughout the world and be to be accepted as a treatment modality. Because no clinical trials have been done, and the main reason that no clinical trials has been done is because, again, no GMP ibogaine has been manufactured in the world. You know and I know that if any university or any uh, institutions or any organizations that want to conduct clinical trials, will we only allowed to use a medicine that is manufactured under GMP condition or ISO standards. That has not been done yet. So without the first step being overcome, we cannot follow the next few steps. The other problem comes about is that even if those countries in Western countries want to basically do any clinical trials, it costs a huge amount. It costs in 20, 30 million dollars. Now, no pharmaceutical companies will want to invest so much of money because they're not going to be able to have control of that product because you can patent a product, but you can patent your technique. You can patent your brand name, but you can't patent the raw material because it's grown. You know, it's not something that's designed unless you come out with a synthetic version, which 18MC has been supposedly come out for many years, but we don't see any end in sight as far as that is concerned. So without the product being licensed and approved, that does not allow any clinical trials to take place. So even if we want to go and, and, and get it approved in any parts of the world, there is no evidence-based information or research done. So nobody will even look at it. So that has ended up pushing everybody to do it in whatever little way we can. And because there is no regulation procedures and because we're not subjected to any of the laws to meet the licensing agreement of what the normal treatment centers encounter or what a normal detox center encounters uh, does, does not apply to people in ibogaine. So that has allowed for the ibogaine community to be very dysfunctional. Again, because it has a profound experience and it is proven over and over again to have such a profound transformation even with a very minimum risk. Yes, there is a risk, but the risk is minimum compared to any other medication that is available in the treatment of substance abuse. Okay. If you have to compare it with methadone itself, you know what I mean? Methadone, right. there's extremely lots of deaths exactly. and overdoses and side effects. Exactly, but yeah. ibogaine is minimal compared to that. So that, has allowed, so that has allowed us to become a dysfunctional community because we are controlled by a lot of people with very good intention who want to help people, but at the same time are not in the academic field or not in the medical field or in the professional field. We have a few very great guys in our community. And yes, they do. They are trying to do some wonderful work like Professor Ken Alpa, like uh, Dr. Jeffrey Camlet. We have Dr. Solas. We have a few very good uh, medical nurses uh, you know, who are very, very experienced. Uh, but it's a very small group. It's, it's, it's a tiny group that's available. So because, again, there is no standard put in place, because uh, it's, it's free for all, that has brought in a lot of people to be able to function. Then we get the other scenario. We get a lot of them who had a very profound experience in coming right to Nibogate, have the good intention of wanting to help people, Suddenly, they themselves have not dealt with their own demons or their own issues, right? 
suddenly become experts, which you can become an expert, not just by having the necessary qualification, but experience. But at the same time, if you have not dealt with your issue, you are not stable, then, you know, the, the addict behavior uh, tends to come on, not by using, you know, even people who are not using, they tend to start now finger pointing, uh, you know, jealousy uh, and, 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 you know, attacking each other, each other and, you know, uh, things like that, 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 you know, which you must, you must understand that this medicine is a plant that brings out a lot of love in an individual, love for yourself and love for everybody around you. It actually brings out the true self of a human being. But we do not see that right. in a number of people that are involved in the field of ibogaine. Yes, actually, you mentioned the GMP. Uh, there, there's no GMP grade uh, ibogaine available. Um, uh, was there not some uh, GMP developed in India, or am I mistaken? Yeah, Bob Sisko has for many years, for many, many years, have embarked on this journey and has come close to GMP uh, in a sense that they have found a laboratory in India that was being able to manufacture ibogaine, which were, had GMP certification in India alone, uh, manufactured from Vokanga Africana. And he has managed to make uh, almost 99.5% ibogaine. And they registered a company, Phytostand, uh, in uh, Canada, uh, but through certain shortcomings in the registration process, they have been unfortunately shut down. Uh, and they have been trying to get um, the same GMP certified ibogaine in, in, from India, uh, GMP approved in other parts of the world. You see, you must understand how regulating bodies work. They work like this. If you manufacture in a particular laboratory, and if that laboratory have the necessary certifications, and if I have to say like now, uh, based in Canada or in America or even in South Africa, now if I want to basically bring that product and register it in my regulating bodies, then my regulating bodies send a team to go and check the standard of that particular laboratory. That laboratory might be GMP certified in India, but we still, the regulating body still goes and check up do they meet the regulatory standard of our country? Or do they, meet, uh, do they meet the basic conditions? So what had transpired, and I think if you Google and you'll see, that particular company has been visited by the FDA in, in, uh, in America, and I found that they have not met uh, the uh, FDA standards. And uh, unfortunately, that product was not allowed and accepted. So even if you manufacture it according to GMP standards and ISO standards, if you want to use it in a particular country, uh, you must be sure that that regulating body comes and does a check that have you met it, uh, met their criteria. Based. So GMP standards are universal, but we don't know the authenticity of certain GMP standards in certain countries, you know what I mean? There might right. be low poles, there might be gaps, whatever it is. So that's why regulated bodies go and double check. Are they meeting the universal internationally standard GMP certification? And is it is it fair to say that there is a difference in the uh, quality of the experience with a, with a, a GMP grade Ibogaine as opposed to uh, one which is developed on normal, on normal channels? Uh, the, the difference comes about is that there's no consist consistency with the quality. Uh, 
Uh, GMP, all, all GMP means is that a product is, managed, is manufactured with a particular consistency and standard that every single time your end result will be the same amount of percentage. Now, those that are manufacturing underground illegally, I mean, not, sorry, not illegally, but may, may be illegally, but uh, without the necessary papers or manufactured underground, cannot uh, give anybody any guarantee that my first batch will be 99.5, my second batch might be 95, my third batch might be 90, or it varies. And you must understand it varies because based on the yield that you get from the, uh, from the product, uh, the ibogaine root bark basically has a yield uh, of ibogaine percentage being anywhere between 2 to 6%. So that varies. So the manufacturing process under GMP standard helps you to make sure that you always get the same percentage of ibogaine every single time because it's manufactured under the same condition over and over again. And I'm sure you've worked with, you know, pure ibogaine as well as uh, total alkaloid extract with other Mm -hmm. alkaloids and so on. So in your experience then, what have you found to be the optimal um, formulation for uh, addiction treatment? Well, look, I've worked with uh, I've worked with every single ibogaine that's available in the world. Maybe just one or two that I think are out, which I've never worked with. I've worked with uh, you know the original uh, ibogaine HCL that was manufactured. I won't mention the people's name uh, just to play safe. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know the product that we had in the mid 90. I'm sorry, in mid 2006 or something, 2005 was pretty good. Uh, then I've also have used Bob Cisco's product. Uh, I basically purchased his first batch of 250 grams when he came out from India. I've also used the ones that are available currently uh, with a few suppliers. And, uh, you know, again, the quality varies, right? Mm. Uh, the quality varies. So even when you're using your dosing protocol will vary, okay? So what I found, what works best is that uh, to use a protocol which I find that will be able for you to gauge how good your quality is or how strong your quality is or how weak your quality is. So what protocol I use uh, most of the time is the simple protocol that people use anywhere between 15 milligram to 25 milligram per kilogram for a male and 12 to maybe 20 or 18 for a female. And then I again, uh, you know, tend to use uh, a test dose, a test dose not necessarily used because of allergic reaction. Nobody has been allergic to ibogaine. It's mainly to uh, get an indication of the tolerance level. So because we don't have the exact percentage, when you give your first dose, you'll be able to get an idea if it's strong or weak or average uh, based on the person's reaction. Then you know how to give the balance of your doses. But you, okay? so right. yeah. No, but you yourself, sorry, I was going to, sorry to interrupt. You yourself use PTA, right? Uh, it's so it's not one hundred percent ibogaine. It's ninety. Correct. What, uh, what, what, so what's the it's, remainder, and and how does that influence the overall composition? Okay, so from the beginning, uh, what was available on the market was basically ibogaine HCL uh, from Eterbinanti iboga, and obviously total alkaloid from Eterbinanti iboga. Then uh, when Bob Sisko and them got involved, they introduced ibogaine HCL 95, 99% from Voganga Africana, right? 
So after that, there are some people that are making from Waganga Africana and there are some people that are making uh, from uh, Iboga, Tabernanti, Iboga. So during our research, during uh, uh, getting involved in the extraction process, uh, we have found out that we, there was a product that we came about was in between your total alkaloid and your HCL. So because the total alkaloid can vary anywhere between 25 to 50% ibogaine in total alkaloid. So what is total alkaloid? Total alkaloid is the first step after the raw material of the root bark where you have an ibogaine percentage of anywhere between 20, 25, 30, 35, up to 40, to 45, up to 50% ibogaine. Then uh, when you process the total alkaloid further, and if you process it to the maximum, then that's when you get hydrochloric, uh, HCL, ibogaine HCL. So how PTA came about was that we tested the other alkaloids that was present. We know there are almost 13, 14 alkaloids present in the turbidante iboga. So we wanted to know, does the other alkaloids play any role in helping people or in assisting people? So during our research uh, with uh, Dr. Chris Jenks, he himself uh, had decided to extract other alkaloids and test it out on an individual basis, like your ibogamine and your ibogaline. So when he tasted and tested it on his own, he found that it made him very, very sick. So then he felt that, okay, it does play a very, an important role. So let me put it in a very small percentage. So he's introduced in PTA, which is known as purified total alkaloid. Okay, he's put it, he put about 2% of ibogamine and 9% of ibogaline, and he increased the concentration of ibogaine to 89%. So how does it play a very important role? It enhanced the potency of the effect and allowed ibogaine to last a bit more longer and allowed ibogaine to be much more profound. Ibogaine HCL from Virgonga Africana is also a very good product, but it acts much quicker and much faster. So that's the difference. Right, right. Yes, so there's a lot, uh, a lot uh, of uh, uh, experience speaking through, uh, through yourself today. Uh, it's great to be talking to you, Anwar. I'm just curious, where, where did you have your first experience itself? Your, your own experience, where did that take place? Well, look, uh, as I said that, you know, I mean, uh, I, I never really overcame my addiction due to uh, uh, using ibogaine, I basically was clean for almost six years when I first tried my first dose of ibogaine. Uh, the only reason I tried ibogaine was because I was uh, implementing ibogaine in my treatment center. I wanted to know personally what a person goes through and what the experience feels like so I can identify with the person during the experience. And around 2006, uh, where a patient had asked me, uh, uh, who has been to my clinic a few times, and had asked me if I could, you know, assist him to come to Saudi Arabia and maybe give him a dose, maybe in a spiritual environment, and uh, it might have a profound effect because he didn't work in the clinic. And uh, so I said, okay, I'll come over with you. But when we got there, he changed his mind. Uh, so I had the product with me, and I decided, okay, you know what, let me try and see what it feels like. So I gave gave the treatment to myself. Uh, I didn't, like, go too quick, too fast, because I knew more or less from experience what a person goes through. 
And I had a beautifully uh, profound experience uh, around, I would say, just maybe around 2006, 2007 mark. Then I think I tried it again in 2009, another flood dose, and then I started looking at microdosing. Microdosing, I used to take small doses regularly, which I did for six years. Uh, I stopped for two reasons. One was that there was accusation that I was addicted to it. Uh, I've never found anybody to be addicted to ibogaine. And even if you do get addicted to ibogaine, it only brings out the good in you. Uh, but I don't normally recommend that's necessary for somebody to take ibogaine for so long. Uh, it's good to use it as microdosing, but you have to have your breaks in between. And I was just using it as a trial and error study. And then I stopped using ibogaine now for at least maybe almost three, four years. And uh, I felt that whatever I needed for it to do, has it has done. You know, the changes that it has made within me. Uh, because you must understand, we tend to change based on repetition, you know. So if you behave in a particular way and you appreciate the positive effects of something uh, over and over again for a long period of time, then then it becomes natural to you after that. So I was just fortunate to try that and I have not touched any ibogaine now going for almost, I think, about three and a half, four years now. And what do you actually, you've, you've set up a, uh, a website or an organization. What's it called? You, your a website? Ibogaine for the World. For the World, right. Ibogaine for the World, yeah. Uh, and what are the what's okay. goals of that, if you want to tell us something about that? Okay, Ibogaine for the World started off uh, with uh, uh, persistence and perseverance of Dana Beal. You know Dana Beal, when he puts his mind into something. He right. will make sure it materializes. Uh, that man pulls off a lot of miracles against all odds. And, you know, we in the Ibogaine community must really take our hat out for him, although he's a very controversial <laughs> figure. But uh, I can is. tell you he does much more than any one of us can do. So uh, he set up a meeting once, and uh, that's when Jeremy White, who basically was also getting into the Ibogaine community, who basically had certain strength in handling organizations and, you know, administrators. So him and Jeremy flew down to Durban. Uh, I think it was around 2015, 2016. They were 2016. And they flew down to Durban and we had a meeting. And our intention at that time was to create an organization that will help people to overcome clinics around the world to meet the proper standards. Our job was a non-profit organization. If you wanted to open up a clinic, we come in, we assist you, we put everything in place for you, we guide you, you run the clinic, you own the clinic. And obviously a small percentage will come to the organization to help others. But we weren't like doing it for any you know, profit basis. And we were also looking at maybe trying to see if any research and clinical trials can be done. And we were also looking at trying to organize conferences to educate more people on Ibogaine. So that was the intention. Uh, we initially thought we'll try and get in registry in South Africa uh, as a non-profit organization, but there were a few challenges we faced, and it didn't have like an international uh, flavor to it in the sense that as far as certification standards, so that's when we got it registered in Canada. So we registered it in Canada as a non-profit organization, and now if you see that uh, the conferences that are taking place are basically all 
coordinated by the organization called uh, Ibogaine for the World. Uh, we are still pursuing in the direction of looking at uh, manufacturing and research. There are challenges that we are facing, which we have overcome many challenges and we're in the final run and in the final stages. And we also have intention of helping to open up clinics. Uh, but again, that has been a bit slow, but still we, we intend going in that direction. So that's the intention of the organization called Ibogaine for the World. We've incorporated another two trustees in there. So we've gone from three to five. And hopefully uh, we are going to carry uh, our, our aims and objectives in the near future. But a few, a few things have been taking place already. Great. I, I think, what, what's exactly, what's the name of the website exactly? ibogainfortheworld.com. Dot com. Yes, I believe that you have a, a, a checklist on there for anybody who is looking for a clinic, the type of questions they can ask uh, of the clinic to vet the clinic before they attend. Is that correct? Yeah, what we did a year ago, a few of us got together and we decided to create a checklist. The intention of the checklist was to make sure that we will be able for, I mean, you will be able to uh, uh, assess your clinic based on a percentage to see are you meeting all the criteria and standards, right? And it has all been incorporated with, you know, getting feedback from people who have lots of experience and covering all angles. So our intention was to pass it on to as many clinics as possible. But, you know, clinics have this tendency to think that we are trying to grade them so that we can find faults with them. No, no, that's not our intention. Our intention is for you to assess yourself based on the questionnaire you fill. Then we will give you a percentage. And from there, you can work towards improving what you need to improve. improve and that information is totally confidential. Okay. And uh, we haven't in implemented it yet because we have been overcoming a few challenges on trying to bring about some unity, uh, which is a very difficult challenge we're facing in our community, but we will achieve that. And if anybody now, for now, even if they just want a copy of the assessment criteria, can request it from Jeremy. Jeremy was the brainchild behind the salting. He coordinated the salting, Jeremy White. Uh, we can request it and we can assist you on a one-to-one -one basis. And I promise you, this covers every aspect of what an ideal ibogaine clinic should be. Even if you want to open up a new clinic, and if you want to know what do I need to do, right from the team compliments, right up from the procedure and the protocols you need to follow, the documentation, the medical equipment, even the medication that you need, even the type of setting that you need, the rooms, the amount of rooms and all those things, all that is included in that. So that was the intention. It hasn't been rolled out yet, but uh, for, for those of you that have asked us, we have shared it with them. And so what is, uh, what can I say, what are the, um, the immediate or medium term to long term goals of the organization? Uh, or, or even in the short term, do you have a roadmap? Yeah, well, look, the conferences are ongoing at the moment. Uh, it has been taken at least once or twice a year. Um, we've had a few already. Uh, we have supposed to have hosted one now in April, but because of the COVID uh, virus incident, uh, that has been postponed provisionally to June in Malaysia. Um, 
Uh, we thought we'll have minimum a year. So in Malaysia, we still have a tentative dates that we're looking at around in June, uh, depending on how the pandemic uh, situation, uh, you know, events takes place. Uh, so the conferences are ongoing. We will have at least one or two a year. We've already had a few uh, in the last few years. So that seems to be running very smoothly. The next part of it is what we are working on currently behind the scenes is we are looking at uh, trying to see if any research can take place. And I think we are just knocking on a few doors. We're just waiting for those doors to open. So our next step is to basically uh, help and assist and uh, trying to get some clinical trials and research uh, started, even if it's on a small scale. And the third part, which I think we will also looking at this year, is now to start helping people to open up more clinics around the world. Uh, so those are our short-term goals currently at the moment, which is a very long process. And our long-term goal is eventually uh, to make ibogaine legal and acceptable throughout the world and for us to see uh, you know, ibogaine accessible to as many people as possible all over the world. Yes, I mean, it, it reminds me of a question I asked of Rick Doblin was basically how much money is actually needed to take Ibogaine through the, uh, the various steps in terms of getting it approved by the FDA? Has anybody done a, a calculation of what sort of money is involved? Well, look, I mean, you know, people always throw about numbers like 20 million average, 30 million average dollars uh, in order for a proper clinical trial was done. We know that something has been attempted in the mid-90s, uh, which never ended well, was also around the same figure, you know. Uh, it's hard to say, but different countries, uh, the price will vary. Uh, and, and I am of the belief that even if we start something small, because I think the mistake we're making here is that people want to get straight to the top of wanting to do a type of uh, phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials uh, and directly get it approved with FDA. I think what we need to do is encourage, uh, you know, universities, uh, which has all the necessary infrastructure, uh, the level of expertise, the academics, and the experts that know how to do some form of research. And I think if these small pockets of types of research that are taking place around the world will create an interest for a research of that caliber where an organization like FDA will show some interest or maybe somebody will take that uh, forward. Yeah, I wonder really, would the FDA take an interest? Because is there not a certain amount of um, politics involved in terms of the pharmaceutical companies not really wanting Ibogaine to succeed because of the fact that it's cheap, it can't be patented, uh, and it's more, more effective than a lot of very expensive uh, treatments currently on the market. So do you, do you not think there's a certain agenda that's against Ibogaine? There is an agenda, but you must understand something is that, you know, uh, you know, I always tell people if they want to know how well Ibogaine works, uh, I always tell them, you know, I just give them one question, seeing it, believing. You have to see it to believe it. I can give you a long story on how it works based on experience, but still you're going to think that whatever I'm saying is far-fetched or even any other experts, uh, you know, that I've been talking for many years, uh, you know, because it's coming off the head, it's far-fetched. But I think if that if there is some organized research done, you know, under 
uh, very reputable universities, uh, I think uh, they will eventually will have to accept it. Because if the results are shown, because anyone you talk to, they'll say, uh, is it evidence-based? Is it evidence-based? So if you start showing them, yes, there is evidence, then uh, irrespective of whether the power that the pharmaceutical companies have or whether they want to allow it to take place or not, they're not going to be able to stop it if, you know, mm. if, if, the, if the proof is in a pudding. Mm, but isn't the big problem that the, the if I can call it the uh, visual uh, aspects of the experience, I'm, uh, I'm not sure on uh, honor. On what? How do you say? I'm not exactly sure of the word. Honorifrenic. Yes. Honorifrenic or emogenic. You exactly. See, now, that's the mistake. That's the mistake a lot of us are making. We need to basically use the right terminologies and the right semantics. The impression that's been created, and 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 I see a lot of articles that come out, although uh, a few of the experts that have labeled it correctly. But media still tend to use the the, the name psychedelic, mm. right, or hallucinogenic. Right. It is not. Exactly, yeah. That is one thing people need to understand, that ibogaine is not a psychedelic and it is not hallucinogenic. Not, not Somebody can't take it and get high and enjoy the trip. You know and I know that a lot of them don't want to try it again. Absolutely, you know, because. Yeah. Because that is, it's, it's unraveling and revealing your innermost demons. It is bringing out things that you are suppressing and trying to hide, you know. So Ibogaine, and, and Ibogaine uh, so-called dreamlike experience is a therapeutic experience. Yes, we do agree that there are some psychedelics in small doses have therapeutic experiences and have therapeutic results. But this one here consistently gives you a therapeutic result. So the labeling, the concept of labeling needs to be changed. Because right. again, how do you distinguish the difference between a hallucinogenic and a non-hallucinogenic? Very simple. And hallucinogenic is something that a person undergoes through an experience where he is not aware of the experience and what he undergoes, whether his eyes are open or closed. Yes, he has some type of visuality and signs as a sounds and things he sees, which might make sense in, in, a, in a spiritual conscience level or might not make sense, right? But they do not go in and, 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 and unleash or remove or release their so-called innermost memories, which has a therapy experience. Because you know and I know, when somebody blinks and opens their eyes, the vision is changed, right. okay? And they're aware. The beautiful part about Ibogaine, compared to any other psychedelic, with Ibogaine, they are aware of the experience. They are in their conscious state. They are aware of their surroundings. They are aware of everything around them while they are going through the experience. And we know that the experience and visionary experience that you experience is mainly when your eyes are closed. When you open your eyes and when you have a conversation with a person, you'll be able to have a conversation. Right. Right. Yes, it's, it's quite a, a distinction. And... I think most people uh, who have had no experience with Ibogaine would find this fascinating because they, it's 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 outside of their realm of experience that you can actually be in this dreamlike like state, which is tapping into your subconscious, and yet you're fully present, like a witness Correct. to your own experience. I mean, recalling my own personal experience, it was like I was a witness that was being kept, if you like, uh, in a cage 
but I, so I wouldn't interfere with the process. And I, I was observing all that was on flowing before me. But when you, as you said, when you open your eyes, you could see who was in the room and you're totally present to everything that's taking place. So, I mean, it is a fascinating experience, but isn't that really the, the, the problem why it may have difficulty ever getting FDA approval? Not necessarily. Again, it's based down to evidence base. If we can basically do some studies, some research, even in a small scale, and show consistency, we know there is consistency, okay? And show consistency, you know, using the right criteria, then obviously heads will change. We can't go now and say, even with me, I've treated thousands of patients. I can't say, okay, now I've treated thousands of patients and this is what I've seen. No, I should have followed a certain protocol and procedure. Then you get the double-blind study, you know, with you know, with the placebo and, and, and with diabogain. So that also has, but it has to be done on a small scale now at the moment. And if you show all those things, then you will see uh, the change of minds and, 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 the, and the change of hearts and, and, and people will start looking at it differently. That's why we need to work on that at the present moment, you know. One is, yes, passing the word around, uh, having conferences, educating many people, but at the same time, we have to basically, you know, play at the same uh, level as the academic, uh, you know, institutions. Mm, mm. Yes, I guess it's a, it's a new frontier. And I mean, there is a, if you like, there is a kind of resurgence into research now with LSD and particularly, well, yes. the, particularly the work that MAPS has done in getting MDMA, <clears throat> excuse me, approved for yes. uh, therapeutic, you know, has really brought the, the, the whole conversation forward by leaps and bounds. Uh, and, and, I, and probably too, you know, the, the, all the different wars that the United States have been involved in in Iraq and Afghanistan has created a real social problem back in the States. And they're looking for solutions for grave problems. And that's probably why they're more open now to MDMA, for example, for PTSD. And then they're moving on towards the possibilities of LSD and perhaps Ibogaine. Um, so we'll keep our fingers crossed and, and watch that space. Um, so I guess I think what's important to mention, Albert, is that yeah. you know what? We always talk about ibogaine in the treatment of addiction. But you know, ibogaine plays a very important role in psychological issues. I'm not talking about psychiatric illnesses, but you mentioned post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, you know, mm. it plays a phenomenal role. Uh, a spiritual uh psychospiritual experience. Uh it's a beautiful adjunct for psychotherapy. If a psychotherapist wants a wonderful experience, put them on a dose of ibogaine and then do psychotherapy. You'll see how much more effective your psychotherapy will be. Then also we need to understand that uh, microdosing, microdosing is extremely safe, but it does play a very profound role in healing. So I think that's the other angle we need to look at. We keep on talking about uh, ibogaine for addiction, ibogaine for addiction, ibogaine for addiction, but we are not talking about the effect of ibogaine for other types of problems. Right, right. Yes, I, I think it's it, actually, I think what's really interesting is the use of 
uh, I began for PTSD. Now I had this conversation with Eric Tubb. We talked about hmm. what 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 did seem to be the ideal, if you like, uh, application. And it's it, he was of the opinion, and it makes sense really that it, it was more of a flood dose that you really need to give a person a flood dose if you're going to uh, see the benefits of uh, of uh, PT, you know, in terms of PTSD. And, and reflecting on that, it seems to me that you know the flood dose, if you like. Uh, brings the brain to a crisis which allows it to reorganize itself and it's perhaps that crisis that that unleashes the forces of the PTSD within the person so I think uh, you know it's very for people who are coming back from Iraq and whatever you know ex-vets and so on I think Ibogaine has huge uh, possibilities what about uh, people that are getting abused you know being in abusive relation that's also for PTSD people have traumatic yes. events not also war related issues but at the same time yes what Eric is telling you is true but I think he must out the main part of how he treats PTSD you must understand PTSD their memories is is, is is lingering around in the subconscious and something needs to trigger in trigger it in order for them to react and respond uh, based on that traumatic events so the beautiful part about ibogaine is that it goes and unlocks the subconscious it allows it to come to the fore in a form of a visual experience and then it releases and allows the person to bring closure to that experience and learn to forgive and let go it's all about let going mm. that is very crucial and very mm. important and yes i agree when it comes to all these type of issues a flood dose is the right way to start it's the same procedure as how you treat addiction same mm. protocol as how you treat addiction for your depression it's the same story for everything i always say that you know what, reset the mind to zero right and then in order to sustain that feeling that's where microdosing will play a very important role. With medical type of issues like we've seen in Parkinson's, yes, the person doesn't need to do a flood dose. They go straight to a small dose, 20 milligram a day. So, you know, microdosing can play a very important role. And the beautiful part about microdosing, it's safe. Right. You don't need any cardiac monitoring. You don't need, you know, to be put in a clinic for that. You know, as long as you follow the protocols of what to use and how to use and what doses you're using, and that's about it. It's like using any other herbal supplement. And, and you just mentioned there Parkinson's. I mean, uh, what, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on the use of uh, ibogaine or iboga, uh, and how, how would you rec- how would you suggest that it might be used for people with Parkinson's conditions? I must confess that I don't have no experience right. uh, in related to Parkinson's. Is what little I heard, and from the patients that we've seen that have attempted it, but I have absolutely no experience, but there are people that believe, yes, it does make a significant difference. Not saying that it cures it, but it does make a significant difference in improving the person's quality of life. Well, I think it probably stands to reason, given that it, you know, it, it resets the dopamine you know, receptors and, and helps to, if you like, sort out brain chemistry. So it does seem intuitively to be uh, you know, a help of some sort, you would imagine, uh, given the nature of Parkinson's. Um, but I think what, it, what what all of this is telling us is that basically Ibogaine uh, and the, you know, it's, and it's in its various forms is, is, a, is a gift which 
to the to humanity, which I find amazing. That you know, I was asking you earlier, how much money do you reckon it would take to go through the uh, the, the approval process? And we maybe a number of twenty five million came up, and that's it's it's chicken feed. Uh, and yet here we are. How many years on since I since Howard lots of you know first painted I began or uh, you know back in the eighties or whatever I think from the eighties yeah. yeah maybe the eighties yeah. So what is going on? Like why yeah. is it, why are we in a, living in a world where such a, a wonderful medicine is not being um, you know made available or encouraged? That's what I want to understand. The problem is we all working in isolation. We need to work together, especially the Ibogaine community. Forget our difference, forget the professional jealousy, uh, uh, forget all the attacks against each other, forget the finger pointing, uh, and and let's find a way that, you know, we put a team together and make sure that, you know, that team basically focus on a particular goal. And the goal is to basically create and encourage evidence-based papers to come out of the market. And just on a, a kind of a, a final sort of topic of conversation, uh, what are your thoughts in relation to the, uh, if you like, the, 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 the attitude of the person that comes to treatment in terms of their uh, inner relationship with a higher, a high, something higher, greater than themselves, a, sort of like a, you know, to, what is the, what is the... You're talking about the 12 steps? Well, no, no, actually what I'm talking about is that the spiritual, you know, when you have these, when you have an Ibogaine initiation experience, often you'll meet a guide and there will be spiritual entities and so on. So to what extent is the uh, relationship between the person and the higher self or, the, or, or something greater than themselves central to the success of uh, the, the Ibogaine path, if you like? Uh, it does play a role. But I think the important part is to first clean your house uh, and, and, and get yourself to a particular level. And if you need to sustain recovery, that's where the higher path or the spiritual component plays a very important role. Uh, a lot of mistakes have been made that people tend to go in that direction first. You know, uh, mm. it's, it's a different step process uh, because it's important that until and unless you don't let go of all your issues, you don't bring yourself to a certain level of being at peace and have transformed yourself and start behaving in ways that are uh, more like being a human than being something like not a human. And then at the same time, if you want to maintain that peace of mind and be at that level, then you can go uh, to the spiritual level and feel whatever, use whatever you feel is comfortable and work with, best for you as long as it maintains and sustains and bring out the best in you. But can a person come to Ibogaine as, from a purely materialistic uh, standpoint where they just want to get something from it functional and walk away? Can they do that? Just, I want yes, to get yes, and yes walk away. many times. Yeah, it, it has it has happened many times. Mm. It has happened where it has shocked people and people have shocked us. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying that it happens for everybody, but it has happened many a times. And there also has happened many times where people during the Ibogaine experience had a, a spiritual experience and made a spiritual connection and have walked down that path. Mm. So as I say, Ibogaine works on an individual to individual basis. And how it works is based on your intention, okay? 
and your sincerity mm. and what you want out of it. That's how Ibogaine works. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm struck by uh, the, the thoughts in relation to what you're saying about, you know, the issues in the community and so on. And it seems to me that when one looks at all the good that is being done by individuals such as yourself and, and just listening to you talk and all that experience and, and, and the contribution that's making to the, to, to the community and to the world, you know, it really it, one has to... Uh, feel a sense of um, sort of sadness that that sometimes uh, it's the little quirky things people get hung up on rather than seeing the goodness of the whole picture. And so uh, it's just great to talk to talk to you, Anwar. And, and I guess in, in wrapping up this conversation, no, I don't think I don't think I don't think uh, it is on a place on record. <laughs> it's not uh, just me alone. There's a lot of other guys that are doing a lot of good that have been doing a lot of good for longer than me, uh, are much more knowledgeable and experienced than me. Uh, I am basically learning from them and we learn every day and we share, okay? And I can reassure you, irrespective of the the, the Ibogaine community being so dysfunctional and so be, being so disorganized, there are pockets and groups of people that are still trying to get something done and I'm confident that they are going to make breakthroughs and they are going to be changes and they're going to be results. Yes, and, I, and I, I, I totally agree with you on that. I think for me, it's about the power of positivity. And if we, you know, if we remain focused on the positive, then we can bathe in, in the, you know, in the outcomes of, of our Correct. endeavors. So, Anwar, thank you so very, very much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure and an honor to have you. And I hope that we'll be talking to you again some other time uh, on some other topic. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, I wish you the very, very best. And, and uh, if there's something you want to say in, in closing, uh, go ahead. All I can say is we hope, I hope we meet soon. Uh, soon. Yes, uh, well, hopefully. When's the next conference? Well, we're planning something in Malaysia. And I think Dana has also got something that is working out in Europe in the second half of the year. But nothing confirmed. It all depends on the pandemic. Absolutely, and and uh, that that is a very trying time for a lot of people. So, uh, well, with that, I'll just say thank you very much, uh, Anwar, and uh, speak to you again another time. Just in just in conclusion, I just want to say for everyone that's listening, uh, I you know I mean I wish you know that uh, you know the good in everybody and whatever I have said. Uh, you know, I hope that my intention was not to uh, hurt anybody's feeling and I'm not claiming to be the so-called expert, but I always believe that, you know, we're always learning in life and we will continue learning until our death. And it's important for us to share. Absolutely. You know, uh, Absolutely. Sharing is caring and I think that's important. And, I, and that definitely comes across. Make no mistake about that. Thank you very much, Anwar, and um, goodbye to you. Thank you, Albert. Thank you for the opportunity and goodbye to you. Bye-bye.